really the reason we celebrate. Uh, honestly, if you think about it, apart from God coming to be with us, there really isn't a reason to celebrate. I mean, one of the most popular songs, one, one of the most popular Christian, not Christian songs, Christmas songs uh, over the last couple of years has been one that really was sung by Andy Williams years and years ago, but it's become more and more popular. In 2010, I think it was the Billboard's charts, uh, number four Christmas song of the year, um, is a song called, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year. I and mean, you've heard it, you've probably heard it on the radio, I'm sure you've heard it at least once this year, because we are fortunate enough to have radio stations that like playing Christmas music as soon as Halloween is over. So you probably have heard this, but let me just give you the first verse. It's the most wonderful time of the year, with the kids jingle belling and everyone telling you, be of good cheer, it's the most wonderful time of the year. But as I thought about that song, I really thought, you know, what's so wonderful about this time of the year? Really, what is so wonderful? Do we get together and celebrate because of the stress and pressure we feel to buy the right gifts? Do we, do we get together and celebrate because we shove more stuff and more meetings and gatherings and parties into our schedule to make us feel more pressure from life? Do we get together to celebrate that? Do we get together and celebrate that in the, in the coming year we're going to have debt and spend money? We, we will have spent money we don't really have to spend and we're going to have this debt to pay off in the coming months. Is that what we celebrate? Is that what makes this time of year so special? That all of our, in the vast majority of our culture, believes that this really is the most wonderful time of the year. You can hear it everywhere. You hear it on the news. You hear it from, from movie stars. You hear it uh, at work. You, wherever you turn. And people are looking forward to this time of year. And really the only thing I think that comes out of this time of year that, that would be exciting is either if you're on the receiving end of the big gifts that you want or you get extra time off work and you get paid for it. That sounds pretty good. Now let's celebrate that. But then there's a lot of pressure after the beginning of the year to make up for what you missed. Honestly, when you stop to think about it, at least as I consider it, as I think about it, is I really don't think that if you take... The, the event, the most, probably one of the most uh, uh, special and most memorable, memorable events in all of history, out of Christmas, I think we might as well just do away with the holiday, because there's really nothing to celebrate. But when we remember that this is a point in history when God decided to come, put on flesh, and dwell among us, that's worth remembering. That's worth celebrating. You know, the song I just mentioned, it goes on to confirm that this is the happiest time of the year. It credits the gatherings, the gifts, the stories, the time with family, even roasting marshmallows. He really says that. They're excited that they're going to get together and roast marshmallows. If this is the source of our happiness, what does that say about us? Are we that easily pleased? And if that's really the source of our happiness, what happens on December 26th? What happens on January 1 when the credit card bills come due? Because the vast majority of our American culture already lives on money they don't make. What happens when they have to start paying for the stuff that they've bought with money they don't have? 
What happens when the bills come due? What, what, what happens for the people who don't have the families together? Are, are, are they just not allowed to enjoy this? What happens to the people who have just lost loved ones? Is it not wonderful for them? You see, the reality is, is that every excuse, every reason we can come up with, every temporary act of satisfaction that we can find that might give us a moment of pleasure, and reason to celebrate falls flat on its face in comparison to the truth that God came to be with us. That is worth remembering. That's worth celebrating. You see, all of the temporary, all of the temporary treasures, they're only going to bring temporary satisfaction. And they're going to leave us longing for more. What I want for our church, what I want for us, what I want for you is to experience a hope that doesn't let us down, to, to experience a joy that lasts, to find more than that temporary treasure. I want I I to see a people gather to worship this God who came to be a king. I think that's what's worth remembering. I think that's what's worth celebrating. And as we work through this passage today, it's a, it's a really familiar passage with a lot of misinformation surrounding it. But I think we'll see that it's worth remembering. Matthew 2 chapter 1 or Matthew chapter 2 verse 1 is where we're going to pick it up. We'll read through verse 11. Along the way we're going to have to stop and I'm we're going to have a lot of build up and, and I'm going to give you some history and some perspectives before we really get to the meat of the sermon. So I'm just going to ask you to Kind of bear with me, and, and I'm going to try and deconstruct some of the ideas we have around what we think of as the wise men. But let's just let's begin reading. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Automatically, there's probably pictures in your mind of these three guys on camels. I mean, because we are so, that, that, that is what we think of when we think, of, as soon as you hear wise men, that's, that's what's in our head. And, and they're, you know, they're parking outside the, the, uh, the nativity scene and, and getting down with the shepherds and, and worshiping Jesus all together, right? That's what we picture. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now this passage opens. Matthew's given us a little, a little. He, he's given us some insight into the setting. It's after Jesus was born in the days of Herod the king. This is not the Herod that beheaded John the Baptist. This is Herod the Great. It's the first Herod. It's the guy who is known to be just super cruel. Well, I guess Herod, Herod that beheaded John was pretty cruel too. But this guy was known for it. He was known to be conniving and cruel, and and just was a, was was a bad dude. It's, it's in his reign before he's dead, and so we know that Jesus is probably no more than about two years old, but he is, he is not a baby in a manger anymore. And these guys show up, and, and as I said, you know, we automatically begin picturing these three men on camels, and they show up, and they're, they're at the nativity, and they're bringing their gifts in the middle of all that's going on with the shepherds and Mary and Joseph. That's not the way at all that it happened. In fact, most of what we think about these wise men is not true and it's not biblically based at all. The idea that there's only three 
that only comes from the idea that there was three gifts given. And you'll see that in a minute, but, but that doesn't limit them to three. In fact, most of the ancient writers, most of the, most of the ancient church fathers thought that there was at least 12 or maybe 14. And they probably didn't travel by themselves. They probably traveled with a group of soldiers. And it says they came from the east. We don't even know what that means. They came from the east. I mean, for us, that could be Virginia. For them, it was probably something different than Virginia. But the reality is, is that we, we've got all of these assumptions. In fact, most, most of the people you read from and most of the people that you can study, they've got all of these assumptions, and they're all extra-biblical. They're outside the Bible, and there's nothing wrong with looking at tradition. There's nothing wrong at looking at, at, at what was taught in the, in the early days of the Christian church and trying to build an idea from that. But honestly, I think the reason Matthew doesn't tell us it's because Matthew doesn't care as much about the wise men as he does about the baby that they came to see. You see, these wise men came for a purpose. They didn't come to be known or come to be remembered. They came to see the king. They came to meet this baby that had been born. So whether there's three or 14 or 100, they're not the main characters. And certainly today, as you're going to see it play out, you're going to see a perspective from them, and you're going to see a response from them that I think we ought to imitate. Don't miss this. Don't put too much emphasis on this. They're not the main character. They're not the star of the show. Now, they show up in Jerusalem, and they begin asking around. They don't go to Herod first. In fact, I would think that that would be the last place that they would go. Herod's got a reputation. People know Herod for a few things. They know he's a great builder. They'd seen all of the things that he had built uh, in and around the region. He built amphitheaters and, and all of this stuff. And, and so they'd seen this, and they knew him to be a great builder and a, and, a, and, a, and a man that was striving to leave a legacy in that way. But they also knew him to be conniving and cruel. And he, 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 he manipulated his way onto the throne and then while he was on the throne, anyone that even came close to challenging his power was killed. He had them killed. He wasn't a nice guy. There was nothing good about him. And so I'm thinking that they probably didn't go first to Herod because the reality is, is that that would have put them at risk. That, that would have put them in a place where they're talking to the king of the Jews about the new king of the Jews. If Herod, he carried that title. He was the king of the Jews. In his own mind, he was the guy. And here these men come from the east. Have you seen the king of the Jews? There, there was a star that appeared to us. These guys are probably pagans. They're probably, probably well, they're definitely astrologers. You know, they're not who you picture showing up to find Jesus. And they come looking for him, asking around. But, I mean, come on, it's not going to be long. It's not going to take long before someone in the king's court hears that there's men walking around Jerusalem looking for the king, and the king gets wind of it. He's troubled. And the idea behind this word troubled is not that he's just a little dismayed about it. Oh, man, there's somebody else that I've got to kill. You know, he's not just a little bothered by it. It began to consume him. 
He was agitated to the point that he devised a plan. And, and you'll see that plan kind of work itself out in the rest of these verses. He devises a plan. He's going to figure out who this guy is. He's going to find this baby. He's going to do something about it. Oh, he was agitated. He was troubled. Have you ever heard bad news? Something that just really bothered you that you couldn't get off your mind? That you just couldn't quit thinking about? Something that angered you? That made you frustrated? I, I, I just got to fix this. Well, that's, what, that's what this news was like for Herod. And he, he, he begins to act. But he wasn't the only one that was troubled. It says all that were in Jerusalem with him were troubled. Everyone that these wise men came to, everyone that they came and asked, were troubled. And in a moment where they should have been celebrating, in a moment where they're hearing about this king that's been born, that's to be king of the Jews. Instead of celebrating, they're troubled, they're dismayed, they're bothered. Now, I don't know why they're bothered. Maybe they, they know Herod. They'd seen what Herod had done. Maybe they're, maybe they're upset and scared to death of what's going to happen when Herod finds out that there's a, a challenger to his throne. Maybe they're upset about the, how this might affect their future. I, I don't know. But instead of getting to celebrate of this great news that this king had been born, they're troubled. Well, let's keep reading. In verse 4 it says, And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, the Christ was to be born. Just, just so you get how this is connected to the previous verse, Herod hears it, he's troubled, the people in Jerusalem are troubled, and Herod begins to act out this plan. He begins to put together this, this, this plan that he's put in his mind, and he's be, beginning to put it in motion, and he assembles the chief priests and the people, the scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born, and they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Herod was so bothered by this news. He was so upset that he began to look. He began to explore. He began to, to, to try and figure out where this baby was born. And so he turns to the Jews. He turns to the people that know the answers. He assembles these scribes, he assembles the, the leaders of the Jews, and he brings them into this place, and he says, all right, where are they born? And in their answer, in their answer, we, we learn that there's no, there's, there's no question in their mind. There's no, there's no miscommunication with these wise men. There's no difference of opinion. They recognize that who these wise men are referring to is the Christ. They don't miss this point. They get it. In fact, when Herod brings him and says, hey, have you heard about this king? Where's he to be born? They refer to a prophecy that was a messianic prophecy, a prophecy that, that tells them that the, the Christ, the one that they've been waiting for, the one that they've been longing for, that he was to be born in Bethlehem. There's no misunderstanding. They should have been celebrating, and yet they're troubled and scared. They get it. But yet they're missing it. Herod is so upset and bothered by the fact that this, this infant king that, the, that these wise men were looking for was challenging his throne. The whole time these Jews should have been excited about that this, the fact that this infant king was the one that they'd been waiting on for generations. 
And so he asks them where they're born, where he's born. They tell him. They give him the place. Now I want to point it out here because it's not really a point in the sermon. It's not really going to bear any weight on the rest of the message. But I want you to see this. I want you to get this. I want you to understand what Matthew is doing. He does it in the beginning chapters. Actually, he does it all the way through his, his gospel message. Matthew is demonstrating that Jesus is the fulfillment of hundreds and hundreds of years of prophecy. Over and over and over and over, Matthew says, this is to fulfill the prophecy. He wants his readers, he's writing to Jewish people, he wants his readers to understand that Jesus came and is the one that they've been longing for, that they've been looking for. And at least in this passage, we realize that at some level they understood that. The leaders of the day, they got it. And did nothing about it. But not just that. I mean, he starts with a lineage that demonstrates that Jesus is in the line of David, that he is not just a carpenter's son. That there's more to him than that, that he is a king. Matthew demonstrates this and shows us over and over throughout his gospel. Now, at this point in the meeting, you know, he, the, 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 the Pharisees or the, the leaders of the day, I'm sorry, the leaders of the day, the scribes and the, and, and the leaders, they, they should have been all about going and finding this guy. But the thing to note about their reaction is their inaction. You see, what happened when, when, when they heard that Jesus had been born, that this king had been born, they got it. And when questioned by, by Herod, they demonstrated that they knew what had happened. And what did they do? Nothing. Matthew doesn't report to us that they ran to Bethlehem to find this baby. And hide him, protect him, and do anything for him. Matthew doesn't tell us that a group of them got together with the wise men and said, we're going to go with you to Bethlehem. Matthew has nothing to report. They didn't even send servants. They, 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 they weren't going to make the five or six mile walk on their own to find this baby that they'd been waiting on for generations. But they didn't even send a servant to find the baby that they'd been waiting on for generations. They did nothing. Matthew didn't report anything because Matthew had nothing to report. But Herod's not done yet. Herod's got more to do. He's agitated. He's bothered. And it says in verse 7, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now, I, I pay attention because Herod wasn't a Jew. He hadn't been anticipating the arrival of the Messiah. He hadn't been looking for a king to come and replace him. He wasn't questioning these Jewish leaders. And he wasn't questioning these wise men because he wanted to go work. He went looking. He, 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 wanted to, he, he wanted to send them. He, he definitely wasn't going to kill these wise men because that was his source of information. But he sent them, asking them to come back and tell him more. And as the story goes, if you look in verse 16, we're not going to get there today, but if you look in verse 16, 
based on the information they give him in this meeting, in this secret meeting that he didn't want anybody to know about, he has all the little boys, two years of age and younger, killed. Because that's really what was at the heart of Herod. You see, what he demonstrated, he, he tries to set himself up in the eyes of these wise men. He tries to set himself up as a man who's on their side, who has the same desires, who, who wants the same thing, who, who's looking for the same king. But he demonstrates himself to be deceitful and selfish. In fact, if you do, uh, if you look at Herod's life, you'll, you'll see it over and over. He lived for himself. He, 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 went, he, he lived to, to continue in his power and his prestige. And he, he wanted people to remember him for, for him. He didn't, want, he didn't want to be remembered for, for the good things he might do. He didn't have a legacy of, of all the wonderful people or the, all the wonderful things he had done in the people's lives that he touched. He longed for power. He wanted power. And if anybody was going to be in his way, stand in his way, take away from that in any way, he sought to deal with them. And it says in verse 9, After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, a star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. These wise men, sitting at home, maybe in Persia or Babylon, I, the idea is, is that it's east of Jerusalem, wherever east was, sitting at home, and a star appears. Now, I don't look at the stars often enough to, to know when one appears or even disappears. These guys were watching the sky all the time. Boom, a new star. And they knew. When it happened, they knew. There, there had been, we don't know exactly how they knew. Maybe it was when Daniel was, was uh, living in Babylon when, when the Jews were under some uh, level of oppression. Maybe, maybe it was all the way back from Balaam when Balaam talked about a star rising out of Jacob. Maybe that's what it was. We, we don't have any idea how they knew. But this, this miraculous event, this God-ordained event occurs, and they recognize this means that the king of the Jews is born. And they get up and they begin to travel. Now, some people think that they traveled upwards of 1,000 miles. We have trouble getting out of bed on a Sunday morning when it's rainy outside. But for them, a thousand miles, you know, I mean, we can climb on a plane and go a thousand miles pretty easy. It's not like we do it and just love it. But you're figuring they're traveling probably on horses, probably not on camels. They probably were riding these big Persian horses. And they're traveling probably about 20 miles a day. They're traveling for months, or at least at least a month, maybe two, depending on how fast they're going and how far they've got to go. It's a big deal. They saw it. And they needed, they needed to respond to it. And they get up and they begin to travel. And it says, when they saw the star that, that had, had risen and went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Well, this star, they get to Jerusalem. And the, the idea is, at least it demonstrated in the text, the idea is, is that the star disappeared. They didn't have it to follow anymore. And that's why they stop in Jerusalem and begin to ask around. They got this far and they don't know where to go next. It led them to Jerusalem and they stop and they begin to ask around. But then as they, after they leave out from Herod, they see the star again. And it, come on, this is not a normal star. There's something different going on. It comes to rest over a single house. 
Go out and try to follow a star to somebody's house. I'll tell you what star's over my house and see if you can figure that out. I know people navigate by the stars. I, I get that. But you're not going to reach the stars. You're always going to be going, and they're always going to be going ahead of you. This is, this is something different, and, and I don't care. You can read. I mean, people have, have made up all kinds of scientific explanations. This is a miracle. God is at work. His son has been born, and he is leading people to this truth. And when they saw the star, I love this verse, verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Matthew doesn't say they got excited and felt happy. No, he, he emphasizes the amount of joy they experienced. He, he, he's like, this is joy times two or joy squared. You know, this is big. It's bubbling up out of them. They can't contain it. They can't hold it. It's more than they can hold on to. Oh, man, they're so excited and they're so full of joy. Because they see as they've gone on this trip, as they've traveled in this way, as they've followed the revelation from God, they begin to see him bring them to this place that they aren't just going to, to follow a star. They are going to see their hopes fulfilled. They're going to meet this king they've gone to see. And they see the star and they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and they worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. They leave Herod and they keep going on their path and they recognize that God is still leading them. That this, that this truth that they've, that they've believed in, that they've been looking for, they had been anticipating this. That they traveled miles and miles and miles. This was no easy trip. Here they were, their hopes to be fulfilled, their joy. Oh, they are so satisfied in this moment. They see this baby, maybe a toddler, maybe, maybe bouncing around. I, you know, I, I don't know exactly how old he was, but they recognize in him that he's the king. And they fall flat on their face. The word demonstrates that they went prostrate, that they got down as low as they could bowed humbly before him. These men of wealth and power and prestige before a baby because they recognized him to be the king. And these wise men, you know, it's not, it's not every day that you're going to hear your pastor say that we should imitate and follow in the path of pagans. But in this context, in this context alone, I think, I don't think there's another one. Oh, we should follow their example. I mean, think about the reactions. Think about the responses that these people had. Herod is afraid that his life is about to be turned upside down and he begins to attack. The Jews who should be celebrating do nothing. And these pagan men who really had no claim to Christ worship. And in their worship, it's not like they're just laying there, prostrate, doing nothing. In the, in the moment of worship, they then begin to give him gifts. These gifts that I don't even know. that I, You know, we know so little about these people. We don't know what their view of Jesus in that moment was. 
We don't know that they understood that he's God in flesh. We don't know that, we, that, that they thought that he was the, the God man. We don't know what they thought about God. We don't know that they believed in one God only. We don't have any idea what their perspective was. What they knew was that something had happened and led them to this place that they saw this king. They don't have any idea likely what those gifts represented as they gave them. But gold, frankincense, and myrrh, there's so much meaning and depth in those. You see, gold's the gift for a king. What else do you give a king but gold? Frankincense, the beauty about frankincense is that it's the incense used on the offerings given to God. And myrrh, it's the gift that every person wanted because it made this stinky life smell good. It's a perfume. It was used for, for wedding beds. It was used for, for people who, who were trying to, to improve the way things smelled. It was used for people in their deaths. So, I mean, when they anointed dead bodies with it. And so in this, we see a king given an offering that only belongs to God, but also one that demonstrates that he's man. And we have no idea that these wise men understand that, but they give from their wealth, they sacrifice of themselves, and they fall flat, humbly before this baby king, this infant king, because of the revelation of God. Shouldn't that be the mark of every believer's life? And yet here we come every year to a Christmas season. And we have to take time out of our regularly scheduled events to purposely speak and call people back to this place because our hearts are so full of desires for the worldly things. We live in a culture so saturated by these ideas that if we just get enough, if we just consume enough things, that we'll be happy, that all our hopes and dreams will be fulfilled. When the truth is, is that all these temporary treasures will only ever bring us temporary satisfaction. See, what I think, what I think we learn in this moment from these wise men as they recognize this infant king, is that the only, the only way or that the only a life lived in pursuit of Christ will result in fulfilled hope and abundant joy. And again, I, I don't think these wise men, I don't think they're the star of the show. I don't think they're the purpose of the story. in their life, in their actions, we recognize that the star of the show, Jesus Christ, is the real deal. A baby who at that point looked probably like every other baby, acted probably like every other baby without being completely selfish and self-centered like other babies. These guys, they come from a thousand miles away, maybe. And they see this baby and they worship and they give themselves to it. I just want to close with a question. How do you respond to the truth about Jesus? Are, are you like Herod? 
so bothered by this truth, by, by this message about the Christ, that you do everything you can to destroy him? I, mean, I recognize today, we, we can't kill Jesus, come on. We know that. But you think about this. There's all kinds of people out there who are doing everything they can to undermine the truth about Jesus. And anytime you deal with the Christian faith, if, if, you're going to, if you're going to undermine the Christian faith, at some point you have to act like Herod and try to rid yourself of Jesus. We're listening to it happen every Sunday night in Christianity Explored. There's one guy in particular that I think about. He wants to get, it, he wants to get rid of Jesus. And so he dismantles his, t- his belief about the Bible. He dismantles the Bible. Well, if the Bible's not true, then what... He can't believe anything about Jesus. That's one response. Or, or maybe, maybe, maybe you're more likely to be like the Jews who had all the reason to celebrate. They had thousands of years of history. And they had so much to look forward to. And the thing we recognize about them is that they did Nothing. I think, unfortunately, in, in, in our culture, in our context, that this describes more of us than, we're, than, than we'd like to admit. And we're so enamored with the world that we do nothing with Jesus. And I don't know what motivates that in us. I don't know what motivates that in people. But I'm hoping and praying that at least in our church, in your hearts, in my heart, that we'd act more like those pagan wise men who respond to the revelation of God. Jesus is a king. He deserves to be worshipped. Deserves to be pursued. Deserves to be sought out. Deserves to be traveled for. Deserves to be sacrificed towards. Deserves our everything. You see, that's the life that's going to bring fulfillment of our hopes and a lasting joy. There's no day on the calendar, no season of the year, no position in life, no, no, no thing that this world has to offer that will do what Jesus can do. And he calls us to this, and he tells us this, and he tells us that to find your life, you've got to lose it. And he tells us this, that if we want our life to matter, we've got to walk away and let go of the things of the world. And here we are at Christmas. What will you do with Jesus? Let's pray. Father, you are, you are great and you are good. And I recognize that at times this, the struggle between our flesh and our spirits is so heavy. God, I, I pray that in this moment that, that you would bring conviction and you'd help us to see those things that we're clinging on to more deeply and more, more that, that seem more precious to us than our Christ. I pray, God, that you would show us and reveal to us the places in our, in our life, in, in, in these moments, and in, 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 in our everyday, God, that, that, that we raise up is more important. That we pursue, 
that we give our lives and devote ourselves to. God, and I pray that as you bring that conviction, you would remind us of the hope that's in Christ and the joy that's to be found in him. That God, like these wise men, as we pursue him, that we would experience this joy, this exceeding joy. That our lives might be marked by rejoicing, not because we've found some temporary source of satisfaction, but because we've found fulfillment in our Christ. God, would you work in us and challenge us and, and, and shape us and mold us? And we thank you, Father, for coming to us, for being with us, for walking with us. I pray, God, that in these, in these days and weeks, that that's where we'll put our focus. That's where we'll keep our eyes. It's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.